Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City, a journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today, with great pleasure, I'm going to introduce my guest, Alex Winder. Alex is a visiting assistant professor in Middle East Studies and also the director of undergrad studies at Brown University. Alex is a multitasking uh, colleague and friend. In fact, has been named also uh, recently as the... Uh, uh, co-editor of the Jerusalem Quarterly, and he has a long list of publications, and we're going to talk about, uh, uh, obviously, most of his work around 1929, policing in Palestine, and particularly in Jerusalem. But first things first, Alex, welcome. Thank you so much, Roberto. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast, and uh, thank you for bringing this podcast uh, to the world. There's been so many really interesting guests that you've had on. I hope I can uh, reach some fraction of, of what the, the levels that they've already achieved. Thank you so much for this compliment, which I take gladly. Uh, but uh, let's get going. And obviously the first question that I'll ask all of my guests. Alex, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? So I was trying to think, um, you know, in, in preparation. I know this is the the kind of opening question for the podcast. So I was trying to think when I first went to Jerusalem, which would probably have been 2000 or 2001. Um, my father actually uh, worked for the U.S. government, and, and in 2000, uh, summer of 2000, uh, he was um, posted to the U.S. embassy, um, uh, which at that point was in Tel Aviv before, you know, recently it was moved. Um, so he and my mother moved to uh, Tel Aviv in the summer of 2000. And of course, that was uh, uh, in many ways a, an inauspicious time to move, uh, you know, to Israel-Palestine. Um, of course, in October, you know, the the outbreak of the Second Intifada. 
Um, and that, in a way, was what sparked my my interest in um, you know Israel, Palestine, the the politics and history of the situation. Um, at that point, I was an undergraduate, um, so I would go to visit them during winter break, summer break, um, and so it would have been on one of those uh, breaks that I that I first went to Jerusalem as a, a kind of tourist. Um, you know, as many people uh, I think first encounter uh, people who are not from uh, this part of the world first encounter Jerusalem, um, and you know, of course, at that time it. It would have been an incredibly tense time, but I think you know I was not necessarily aware of all the 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 intricacies of of the you know the politics of of Jerusalem at that point. Um, and just you know from my perspective, it was sort of walking down these ancient streets and and marveling at these kind of magnificent um, buildings. At that point, I remember that that there was no access for um, non-Muslims to the Haram al-Sharif, um, so I knew that you know that there was, to some degree, this was a, a place that was contested. That there were kind of politics uh, built into it, um, but it was only kind of later uh, that I that I really kind of took it upon myself to learn a bit more about what was happening in in Jerusalem and and kind of in in Palestine, Israel more generally. Um, became kind of, you know, connected to Jerusalem really through, uh, you know, taking classes, studying, researching. After I finished my undergraduate degree, I, I began working at the Journal of Palestine Studies. And that really kind of, you know, brought me in touch much more with people who were from Jerusalem, people who had very deep connections to Jerusalem, people who had written on Jerusalem. Um, and then it took me probably about 10 years after graduating um, uh, from my undergraduate uh, degree to actually go back to Jerusalem, not to visit you know, my parents, but to kind of be um, you know, conducting, conducting research uh, there. Um, I, I did archival research in Jerusalem for about a year uh, in 2013, tw uh, 2014. Um, living in Ramallah and commuting back and forth to the Israel State Archives, which were at that time in, in Talpiot, um, before they kind of went completely online. Um, and so that was also a very interesting relationship with Jerusalem, right, as a kind of commuter from Ramallah, taking the bus um, into Jerusalem, then taking the, you know, Bethlehem bus and, and getting off um, in Talpiot. Um, you know, really kind of making friends, becoming familiar with the city, but still being kind of removed from it in a certain way because I was living in Ramallah um, and, and kind of associated in many ways with, you know, Kalandia checkpoint and, and to what degree is traffic going to be horrible or not, you know, how, how, how to manage um, this kind of uh, the hours that you're, that you're stuck in line waiting, um, even and as someone who has a, a U.S. passport and kind of is, is able to move much more easily than others, um, you know, it, it, it still kind of becomes this sort of uh, thing that defines your relationship with the city in, in a lot of ways. Um, and then recently I, I went back actually just uh, in January 2020, kind of before, uh, the, you know, global pandemic really kind of shut down travel. Um, with my partner Alia, and, and kind of it was interesting going back with her um, to kind of again 
visit it as a sort of tourist and to see it with new eyes in a way. It was her first time being there. And so again, kind of seeing the major sites and, and kind of walking through um, you know, the old city of, of Jerusalem with you know, much more knowledge, but also kind of, uh, again, kind of seeing it for the first time as if for the first time, right? To kind of have that excitement and, and that kind of, um, and, and this was actually, it was the first time that I, that, you know, we went together to the Haram Sharif and it was the first time I'd actually been there, which, you know, as someone who's studied, uh, you know, Palestine and Jerusalem for many years, you know, it, it seemed strange in a way that I had not had that experience before, but that, you know, was a totally new experience and, and a really kind of amazing experience for me. So I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a relationship that's constantly, you know, evolving and it's changed in, in many ways from kind of, uh, you know, someone who's a kind of completely ignorant kind of tourist uh, to someone who's kind of engaged and involved in academic questions. And then again, as a, as a kind of, you know, tourist to, to visit it again with a, that different perspective. Um, and, you know, again, the, the, you mentioned um, Jerusalem Quarterly. So that's also been a huge part of my kind of connection to Jerusalem. It's so since uh, being in Palestine in, in 2013, um, you know, working closely with Salim Tamari, and he kind of brought me um, to be a part of kind of a team that, that worked on, on this journal, Jerusalem Quarterly, which um, has, you know, been a really big part of my kind of education on Jerusalem, really, to kind of read the, the articles, to edit the articles, to kind of see the different ways that people have engaged Jerusalem, approached Jerusalem through photography, through travel writing, through, you know, archaeology, through history, ethnography, all these different ways of, of kind of seeing the city in different ways, seeing different parts of the city, becoming kind of more acquainted with parts of the city that are, you know, if you go as a tourist, you're not going to go to Kufar Aqab, you know, you're not going to go to Shafat camp, you know, these different parts of the city that are, that have, you know, real importance and, and real meaning and, and kind of help open up the, the understanding of, of Jerusalem in different ways. Um, you know, that's really been a, a huge kind of pillar in terms of uh, my education and understanding of Jerusalem and my relationship to the city. In 2000, I made my first trip to um, Palestine and Israel, and I remember I had the same opportunity to visit the Arama Sharif compound uh, because that was right uh, before the Second Intifada. And so, you know, there were less restrictions. And uh, I remember the fascination. And yet that was not actually the moment I thought about working on Jerusalem, to be honest. Mm. So in a sense, I, I, I understand what you're saying is like sometimes you go around, you explore, but then there are other reasons why uh, people get, you know, into a, uh, like in our case, like into an academic uh, kind of job and research. But one thing that certainly we have in common is that at some point we came across the Jerusalem Quarterly. Uh, now uh, we are working together. Uh, yes. But obviously you met uh, Salim, you met other people. You mentioned that you were, you also got a job for the, um, uh, was that the Institute of Palestine Studies, correct? Yeah, in, in Washington, D.C., um... Uh, the DC office working as a um, on the Journal of Palestine Studies. 
And I started reading the Jerusalem Quarterly the moment uh, uh, I started my PhD. And of course, I needed some sources and I found these amazing publications with all these different articles covering history, sociology, anthropology uh, connected to Jerusalem. And so that became my main source uh, for, you know, material. And now, as I mentioned at the very beginning, you have been recently named as a, one of the co-editors together with uh, Dr. Lisa Taraki uh, of the Jerusalem Quarterly. And so I'm going to take the chance here to ask uh, if you can give us a sense of uh, what is the Jerusalem Quarterly, what's the history of the journal, and what's the purpose of the journal? That's a great question. And, and you know, the journal really, I think, um, came out of this, uh, you know, the sense at the Institute for Palestine Studies, which is the kind of umbrella organization that publishes Journal of Palestine Studies and Majelita Dirsata Palestinia, and um, also for a while the the French language Revue uh, d'Etudes, um, that Jerusalem itself was, and I, I think it also came out of this kind of, you know, post Oslo moment um, feeling and and the timing of the Second Intifada as well, that that this kind of place, Jerusalem, which has this kind of intense kind of symbolic significance for Palestinians that, that was kind of, you know, viewed as this, um, you know, future capital of a Palestinian state that that um, was this kind of cultural and religious and, and um, you know, economic hub, uh, you know, a major uh, city for, for Palestinians. You know that the, the place of Palestinians in it was becoming less and less secure. It, it, that it's you know this idea that it would be a, a kind of you know potential capital of a Palestinian state that that hope was kind of dimming and or diminishing, um, and that what was happening on the ground in Jerusalem kind of really required um, a kind of attention, and and that that a journal a, a kind of you know, originally it was called the Jerusalem Quarterly File, right? So a kind of a, a dossier every every um, three months to update the situation in Jerusalem, which seemed to be kind of eroding um, significantly, was uh, was in order. That this was a, a, a significant issue in and of itself. Um, and so I think that was the original kind of idea behind launching Jerusalem Quarterly. Of course, uh, I think very quickly. Um, it, you know, Salim Tamari, who is the kind of founding uh, editor of it, you know, has such a, an amazing kind of range of interests and, and, and mind for Palestinian social history, you know, photography, uh, uh, music, diaries, you know, all these different kind of facets of um, Jerusalem and, and uh, Palestinian kind of history that it became much more than a sort of quarterly update on, on what's happening in Jerusalem, right? It became um, a really kind of exciting place where different kinds, different facets of Jerusalem and, and, and Palestine more generally, these kinds of understudied or, or, or kind of marginal histories became, you know, uh, were given light and, and were given a, a kind of platform um, for exploration. Um, and I think, you know, the, 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 group of people that were involved, um, Rima Hamami, uh, Penny Johnson, Sam Nassar, uh, Nazmi Jobe, who, who uh, you recently had on the podcast. Um, you know, these are people with, with kind of really a, a, an interest in kind of the, 
the stuff of daily life, you know, whether it's kind of in in the present, but also in the past, right? Not a kind of uh, dry, uh, you know, kind of history of Jerusalem or it's kind of official historiography of Jerusalem, but but kind of getting into the the nooks and crannies, the the kind of dirty parts of Jerusalem, the the underbelly of the city, the the ways in which it doesn't conform to certain kinds of ideas about what it should be, and I think it's really you know grown from from this kind of original idea to being a place where um, you know that that the city become comes alive in in so many different ways, and and the different kind of issues that that face the city are not just kind of uh, on a diplomatic level or a political level, although of course those are are kind of important and and those are addressed, but but kind of the, this on a social level, like how do people live in Jerusalem? How did people live in Jerusalem? What are the things that that matter to them? Who are the people that are were kind of on the margins or are on the margins? And, and what are their experiences of Jerusalem and of Palestine like? Um, a few years, uh, Bashar Dumani came on also with Salim uh, as a co-editor. And I think this is also, you know, very much a, a vision that, that aligns with his of, of kind of Palestinian studies, thinking about um, all the different ways that Palestinians, you know, to try to not see Palestine or Palestinians as a as a monolith, as really kind of seeing it as a dynamic society that has um, that you know has is not necessarily romanticized, right? That has um, you know its its kind of elements that are perhaps you know don't fit kind of certain kind of romanticized images, whether it's um, from an Orientalist perspective or from um, a nationalist perspective, and that that it's really that kind of social social history, um, micro history, uh, kind of plumbing the, the different uh, depths of, of um, what, what people's lived experiences of Jerusalem and of Palestine and, and kind of the lived experience of Palestinians beyond Palestine um, and their connection to, uh, to the land of Palestine and to Jerusalem as a city. How do you kind of really take into account the, the diversity, the, the dynamism, the um, um, the kind of the the ways in which these histories are not kind of flat or static, but but really kind of um, open to a lot of different ways of interpretation and, and of exploration. Um, and so I hope you know they've set a really high standard for Jerusalem Quarterly, as you say. You know, kind of reading it, it, it you're there's so much really fascinating and and kind of unexpected. Uh, material in in the journal, you know, over the last twenty years or so, it's it's um, it's uh, you know sometimes you'll run across something and you just you know you're you it's it's like finding a kind of nugget in the archives, right? Um, you know, and and so that's a really kind of what what I think is amazing about the journal is that it 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 it, it has these kind of surprises in it um, that it that you never are kind of 100% sure it, it's it's not boring you know it's a, it's a really exciting uh, uh journal and and part of that too is you know i think in a way it's a it's an academic journal there are academics who write for it there are kind of research articles and things like that but it's not only that it's it's a journal that um you know is is close to the ground that it, it wants to capture the voices of people living in jerusalem it it, it um you know gives voice to you know 
younger scholars to people who are not scholars, but who are, you know, Jerusalemites to people who are conducting oral histories and interviews, remembering their, their family, um, all these different dimensions. And it's, I think that's also reflected in it's, you know, it's open access, right? So anyone can go online and read any issue of, of the journal. It's all available in, uh, on the website. Um, and I think, you know, that reflects the kind of ethos of Jerusalem Quarterly, right? It's, it's not kind of, again, kind of high above the fray and kind of looking down at Jerusalem. It's, it's kind of in Jerusalem and of Jerusalem and with Jerusalem and for Jerusalem, right? It's, it's you know, in a place where distributing uh, paper copies of a journal and, you know, is not the easiest thing, right? If you're in uh, the West Bank, if you're in Palestine, if you're, you know, wherever you might be, if you're a Palestinian, a refugee camp in, in Lebanon, you know, it, there's a, there's a kind of, you know, Part of the goal, I think, in making it open access is, is to say this is a journal for for Palestinians, for everyone, um, and you don't have to be, you know, have a, a, a university library subscription. You don't even have to have a subscription to, you know, the the paper journal itself. That that this this is kind of um, it's it's a popular journal in that sense of of kind of the meaning of the word, you know, for 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 the people. Um, and so I hope that we can kind of maintain that, um, you know, I'm, I'm perhaps romanticizing it a little bit, but I do think that that's, you know, at least the kind of driving um, kind of vision behind it that, that it, that it has been this and it, and it should continue to be this. I must confess that one of my favorite articles, it was an article about the cats of Jerusalem. Mm. And I always wish there would be like uh, someone else writing about them. Like, I think this was published probably around 10 years ago. Uh, but it really stuck with me and it's like, oh, I wish someone else would engage with that aspect of the city. You know, they're fascinating animals as a cat lover, but right. it also they made me think about that these cats can roam around the city freely. And literally, they are the only ones who can just go across and, you know, just don't bother too much about uh, artificial or even real borders that are set throughout the city. Alex, I wanted to ask you something about, uh, again, the Jerusalem Quarterly, because I think this is an important aspect, not just of your work, but also of, uh, of Jerusalem itself. You mentioned earlier that essentially the journal wants to be open to everyone because it's available on, um, online for free. Uh, but also from, from my perspective, what I cherish of, of Jerusalem Quarterly is that it's intersectional in a sense that it's open to uh, scholars from different backgrounds, regardless of their you know, identity, whether they're Israeli, Palestinians, international. And that to me always made uh, Jerusalem Quarterly a forum, a way to look at Jerusalem from multiple perspectives. I was wondering what, what you make of this. I mean, I think, it, it, you know, you kind of mentioned this in, in the question, but I do think in some ways it is a reflection of the the city itself, right? I mean, you know, one of the things I, I remember living in Ramallah and kind of commuting into Jerusalem and then kind of coming into Jerusalem to socialize is also kind of, there are all these international organizations. There's, um, you know, the, the kind of religious institutions that bring people from all over the world. There's um, kind of people from, you know, Israelis, Palestinians, there's, um, you know, Armenians, uh, you know, of longstanding kind of Armenians who are or more recent uh, kind of um, 
kind of inhabitants of the city. There's that it, it's really you know kind of reducing Jerusalem to any one thing is uh, impossible, I think. You know, and and I think this is in many ways what Jerusalem Quarterly is is kind of working against, right? The idea that that Jerusalem is any kind of frozen as one particular thing, frozen as a as a symbol or frozen as a holy city or, um, you know, that that in many ways kind of approaching Jerusalem as the the city that's made up of the people that live there, of the people who are invested in it, um, you know, emotionally, economically, politically, that that kind of this approach to, to Jerusalem, I think, allows it kind of and, and encourages kind of people with different kinds of connections, people with different kinds of perspectives um, to be a part of a conversation about Jerusalem, to be a part of um, contributing to what we know about Jerusalem. Um, and I think, you know, it's not to say that that kind of anything and, and, and everything about Jerusalem, is, you know, will be published in Jerusalem quarterly. I think, you know, there are some, that, that there is a kind of, ethical commitment of those who are working on the journal to kind of to not want the city to be an exclusive city to not want the city to be um a, a, a city that kind of pushes out its residents to not want the city to be an oppressive city so i think you know to that de degree like there are some kind of common sort of political commitments but it's not rigidly kind of um uh defined by you know what somebody's nationality is or, or kind of how you know that you know is assumed to define their connection to Jerusalem but rather kind of letting that connection to Jerusalem kind of speak for itself in the way people write about the city. Uh, your work focused for the most part on policing and crime during British mandatory Palestine. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, that period of time, and particularly focusing on the city of Jerusalem, sometimes people associate Jerusalem with its holiness, mm. but Jerusalem is a regular city where crime and policing are parts of a city. They're embedded in the uh, social uh, fabric of the city itself. Absolutely, and and you know it was one of the kind of major, um, and, and it still is kind of one a, a very highly policed city, right? Um, uh, it was kind of the headquarters for the British Mandate administration, um, and as a result of that, it was where the kind of central prison was. It was also a, a, a city that even before the British, right, had a kind of connection to the Ottoman administration, and part of that was a kind of security apparatus. And so, you know, one of the things I'm interested in, in terms of looking at um, kind of policing and, and, and crime, law-breaking, um, is what it tells us about kind of the relationship between state and society, right? And um, so, in you know, in the, the kind of the the history of the the British Mandate is one that becomes kind of increasingly uh, repressive towards Palestinians in terms of the security apparatus. You see a kind of um, you know increase over time of the number of of British. Uh, Police who are who are kind of called in, British military who are called in, especially during the 1936 to 39 revolt. Um, but one of the things that I'm kind of actually more interested in is to think about how Palestinians who served in the police force under the British mandate 
interacted with Palestinian communities uh, uh, during this period. You know, I think it, it kind of, it pr produced a kind of um, tension, right? Where, you know, police who are of a certain community are associated with a regime that's seen as antagonistic towards that community. Um, during the revolt, for example, there was, you know, targeted attacks against um, policemen, many of them, you know, British police uh, or, or kind of, um, you know, Jewish policemen, but uh, quite a few assassinations, attacks on, on Palestinians and, and Arabs who were serving in um, the Mandate Arab uh, police force. So that kind of, you know, that in that moment during the revolt itself, you can you can really see the kind of the, the heightened tensions um, um, within the Palestinian community itself. On the other hand, you know, for many Palestinians, it uh, it was a kind of it was a job, right? It was a, a stable, uh, well, relatively well-paying government job. Um, and so, looking at, for example, at, at oral histories um, uh, conducted with Palestinians who served in the police force, this is the kind of primary, you know their primary understanding of what they were doing as policemen, right? They, they joined the police because, you know, they were in, in search of a job. And this actually became, in Jerusalem, it became um, an issue for um, kind of, in terms of this kind of divide between uh, urban and rural Palestinians and, and kind of along class lines, right? So you had kind of urban Palestinian Jerusalemites who, who saw kind of rural Palestinians who had been enlisted in, into the police force uh, coming into the city and, and doing police work, right? And so, you know, there was kind of complaints that, that you know, what are these, what is this sort of riffraff doing, kind of telling us what to do, essentially. Um, so you can see, and, and from the British perspective, they were always interested in making sure that people who were serving in the police, or, or for the most part, they were interested in making sure that people who were serving in the police weren't serving in their hometowns, right? That they weren't serving in the places that they had families that they grew up because they were concerned that that would be a kind of corrupting influence or that they wouldn't be able to do their jobs objectively. So for them, from their perspective, they didn't want Jerusalemites policing other Jerusalemites. They wanted non-Jerusalemites policing Jerusalemites. So you had this kind of tension within, within the city, uh, kind of, especially among elites, right? Kind of looking down um, at these policemen. On the other hand, Jerusalem is a city that's kind of expanding wildly in the mandate period, right? And so there is kind of with that, there's concerns about, um, you know, law breaking of all different kinds. So whether it's, um, you know, of course, the most common things are things like robbery, um, you know, breaking and entering, uh, burglary, these kinds of things. Um, but and of course, kind of from the British perspective, the most uh, concerning kinds of crime were those that were kind of the clashes between different communities in Jerusalem. So especially between, you know, Jews and, and, and Arabs, between um, Zionists and, and Palestinians, this kind of fear that that Jerusalem as a city with, um, you know, both kind of large uh, Jewish populations and large Muslim and Christian populations, but also with these kind of sites that that were kind of contested and spaces that were contested and, and spaces that had kind of particular significance that this was a, a kind of tinderbox. Uh, and, and this was always a concern for the British in terms of policing. And so in, in many ways, although the kind of most common 
kinds of crime. And if you look at kind of complaints and, and, and arrest registries and these kinds of things, the things that people are, are worried about on a day-to-day -day basis is, is whether someone, you know, broke into their house and, and stole something, you know, from their house or whether, um, you know, they have a dispute with their neighbor over, you know, uh, whether uh, something needs repair, you know, on the boundary between the two houses or whether there's a fight between two families or, or whether, uh, um, you know, someone is, is kind of, there's a, a, a place where people are getting drunk uh, in the neighborhood and, and it's kind of disrupting people's uh, sleep and or, or kind of people are worried that it's bringing, attracting the wrong kinds of crowd. All these are the kinds of things that, that people express concerns about. Um, but of course, from the British perspective, politics was the most important thing and making sure that um, suppress uh, uh, or otherwise kind of control the sort of political tensions in the city was the, the number one priority. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I'm not uh, well versed into the uh, contemporary police reports from Jerusalem, but I suspect there won't be much of a difference that despite the fact that I'm sure there's plenty of, uh, let's call it uh, regular crime, but the focus, at least uh, monitoring uh, particularly Israeli media, is often, uh, you know, more uh, political in a sense. The attention is uh, is about, uh, you know, potential or attacks carried out by Palestinians. Uh, like just a few days ago, a woman was killed in the old city um, because allegedly was trying to attack a an Israeli police. So I, I guess that really didn't change much from the uh, British period where crime is some sort of a, a obsolete does exist, but is uh, shadowed 
in the face of more uh, sort of a political tensions. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think, you know, you can see also, I mean, part of it too is, is and again, this kind of connects to my interest in, in you know, Palestinians who served in the police force. Uh, there's also this sense, for, you know, that you have a, a kind of foreign occupying force or a, a kind of um, uh, a sense that the police aren't connected to the communities in, you know, they're not rooted in the communities and that it, it feels like there, that there's always this kind of tension between, uh, you know, I, just looking at, at photographs from the mandate period, right, of British policemen kind of in, in the old city, patrolling the old cities, conducting searches in the old city, and looking at the present day, you know, uh, you know, images and, and video of the kind of Israeli checkpoint at Damascus Gate and, and kind of the way, you know, the control of, of access to, to the city and, and things like this, that, you know, it's, it's in some ways a kind of, it reinforces itself, right? The more the, the focus is on political crime and, and kind of this idea of um, kind of politics rather than kind of quote unquote, you know, everyday crime or, or normal crime the more it also kind of produces this divide between um you know the state and and the society and 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 those things are kind of and vice versa right this kind of divide between state and society so the more that the british are, are feel that they can't really trust palestinians to serve in the police the more they kind of bring british uh soldiers or british policemen to to kind of patrol in in, in jerusalem and elsewhere in palestine uh the more it kind of produces this situation where where people don't view the police as anything more than a kind of the the, the kind of coercive arm of the state right that it that it and that the policemen themselves don't have any real you know knowledge of uh, uh, what's going on or connection to what's going on um, in in communities they're just there to produce a certain kind of you know political order um, that's deeply unpopular right? I feel like um, Michel Foucault would be uh, very much interested in these case studies for perhaps rewriting his work about policing, crime and punishment. I, I wanted to ask you something about uh, what you mentioned, this historical dimension. The British employed also um, Indians, Muslim Indians, uh, obviously coming from you know British controlled India, in order to patrol certain locations around Jerusalem given the fact that obviously, you know, they relied on the sort of a religious identity of, of this individual. And I, and I wonder if there's any connection with uh, how the uh, Israelis are relying on Druze uh, in order to control, particularly the entrance to the Aram al-Sharif. I wonder if they're using the same sort of techniques so that they sort of use uh, uh, individuals who share uh, identity traits, whether it's religious or ethnical in order to patrol certain uh, parts of Jerusalem? I mean, I do think there's a certain kind of uh, uh, shared logic um, between kind of British colonial and, and Israeli um, ways of thinking about also kind of the, the, the kind of racial makeup of the police and, and this kind of, you know, a certain kind of association of, of martial races. And, and I think, you know, from the British perspective, this was kind of an uh, empire wide Kind of way of thinking about, you know, who should who should who would make a good policeman, right? So you actually see this becoming a, a, an issue, kind of time and again, in, in among British uh, colonial officials, 
were, you know, in Palestine and were thinking about Palestine, whenever there would be a kind of, um, you know, uh, a, a kind of situation that would bring Palestine to the fore as a, a place where there were these kind of, you know, communal tensions and, and political tensions, um, this question of, you know, what, who can we have police uh, these, you know, Jewish and, and Arab populations that will kind of be able to serve as quote unquote neutral intermediaries, right? You know, or who, who will be able to kind of control these populations and, and has it kind of within them to be good policemen. So they, they look to Cyprus and, and, you know, should we bring Cypriot policemen? You know, they, they're familiar with this kind of society where there's, uh, you know, kind of religious divisions within society. Um, there was a kind of question of, of bringing uh, Armenians, uh, of bringing uh, Assyrians from Iraq. And of course, you know, the, the recruitment of Assyrians into the Iraqi levies was, became a kind of real issue in Iraq that, that kind of ultimately really alienated um, the Assyrians from Iraqi society and, and kind of led people to view them as kind of affiliated with uh, uh, kind of British uh, colonialism kind of quite directly, right? Um, or kind of bringing uh, certain groups from, uh, from Africa, British colonial Africa or, or, or British um, uh, kind of India to, to come police in, in Palestine. And of course, none of these really kind of bore fruit in any uh, kind of serious, serious way. But I do think it, it shows a logic. And I think, you know, the, the recruitment of uh, Palestinian Christians, uh, citizens of, of Israel, uh, especially Druze, uh, uh, Palestinian Druze citizens of Israel into the police. Um, there's a certain logic, not only, I think, ab about kind of um, trying to figure out who might be a kind of inter an effective intermediary or a, a, a kind of um, useful intermediary, um, but also I think and, and here's there's another connection with kind of British colonial thinking, you know, in terms of cultivating uh, kind of pliant minority groups within within society that that then kind of are reliant on the the, the state um, for protection, um, that are reliant on the state for certain kinds of forms of patronage, and, and in, in some ways kind of dividing society into these kind of groups that that can then that are then in some ways pitted against. Uh, one another, and so I think the case of the Assyrian levies in, in Iraq is one that that you know is is troubling. And, and you know, speaking to to, to friends and colleagues uh, in the Druze community and in, in inside Israel, you know, this is a concern that that it, that it kind of produces a, a kind of antagonism, right, or, or reproduces an antagonism between you know Druze communities and other Palestinian communities, or it kind of makes a promise to um, Palestinian Christians that that they can kind of um, attain a status within Israeli society that's above that of uh, Palestinian Muslim citizens of Israel. And Rauda uh, Kanana has, uh, has also um, uh, written a book called uh, Surrounded that's kind of a kind of present day ethnography looking at, at um, Palestinians inside, uh, for, you know, inside Israel who kind of are, are negotiating these kinds of really difficult situations and and you know it's hard to you know one one can understand why the seeing this as an avenue to access 
for you know improvement of one's uh, uh, kind of social and, and economic circumstances for for oneself for one's family uh, is attractive, right? And this is again kind of getting back to the the mandate era. This is what motivated uh, Palestinians to serve in, in the police force then, right? It's seen as a, a kind of a way of, you know, personal and and family and, and communal improvement. You know, people were able to, um, you know, access certain kinds of things through government service that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to. But of course, it one can also understand why people found, you know, were, you know why their you know, communities might have been dissatisfied with that kind of arrangement, right? That that it that it was not um, did not mean. Uh, that everyone in the community had access to certain things. It, it meant that, you know, the way to get that access was through um, kind of making a deal with the state to police, surveil, you know, in, engage in the practices of, of control and, and suppression of the political will of the majority population, right? So that, so that it's this kind of, it produces a certain kind of tension and, and it, and, and it, it is kind of the way kind of colonial ideas are transmitted from one place to another and, and how kind of the, this idea of, of martial races of, you know, you know, policing who, which populations, which groups, which ethnicities, which religions are, are quote unquote good at policing um, really kind of uh, it's, it's shared across um, colonial situations really everywhere you look. I guess the old, uh... Roman uh, Latin uh, divided the tempera, divided and rule, mm. still very much uh, the leading principle that the British left and the Israelis uh, picked up. Yeah, and you can, you know, you know, on the one hand, I think part of it was a, a kind of an intentional idea of, of you know, there, there's a there's a goal of dividing the population, and some of it was just this was the the way. Uh, the a colonial way of seeing the population right you have to categorize people you have to you know you have a you ha you have to kind of make order out of what seems like chaos right when you're when you have a, a colony to run and so you know categorizing people by who's good you know in the most basic terms right who who is good and 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 will support the government and who is bad and needs to be controlled this is the kind of most basic way of, of understanding the population and then you know upon that you overlay kind of understandings of 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 race of uh you know ethnicity of um religion and and but also of kind of you know in in the case of palestine under the british right they they would designate like which villages are, are good villages or bad villages right so this is a kind of you know very like it's it's both very crude, but it, it also kind of you can you can see the logic behind it that that you have to kind of you you have to know the the country and the best way to to know it or the most important thing to know is whether a village is supportive of the government or not supportive of the government and that becomes the kind of organizing principle and why that is what are the dynamics within the village that that kind of produce an affinity towards you know cooperation with the state on certain kinds of matters or, or not that that kind of gets tossed in the background and it becomes kind of essentialized right so that, that this is a good village or a bad village this is you know this religion is troublesome and this one is is cooperative and, and this kind of um you know really kind of binds the British into to certain kinds of um, 
you know, it, it, it really shapes their approach towards policing, but also towards all kinds of other things and whether, you know, funding schools, whether it's building roads, um, uh, all, all different, you know, kinds of, of ways in which the, the state tries to govern the population is shaped by this kind of very crude, like good or bad, you know, kind of like matrix of, of, of understanding. Feels as like Jerusalem has always had, I mean, at least in the last century or so, like a large police presence. And yet it doesn't feel like people talk much about it. It feels like uh, it's part of the urban fabric, the urban environment. But the way you are talking about it feels very much as if uh, the police has a solid control. And again, this was certainly true during the British. It's obviously true under the Israeli. Perhaps it was also possible under uh, the Jordanians in, in, in East Jerusalem. But the, the reality is that it feels as if the police is a large, strong and visible component of the urban fabric of Jerusalem. Yeah, I would say. And, and that's, you know, I think it's purposeful. I think, again, you know, there, that there's a, a, a sim, symbolism in this strong uh, police presence. For the British, it, it was part of establishing uh, Jerusalem as kind of capital of, of the mandate, of the administrative center, um, of asserting British control over Jerusalem. I think for the Israelis, it's very much about the same, right? Asserting a kind of, not just a, a material control, but also a kind of symbolic presence in the city that, that the people who are, you know, who you see, who are in uniform, who kind of have the, the trappings of the state literally on their bodies, right? That, they're, they, that they are wearing uniforms um, issued by the state, um, that, that they're everywhere you go, that you, that you see them, um, that they're omnipresent and, and quite visible. And that this, you know, I, I think it, it shows an attempt to symbolically, as well as materially kind of assert control in, in a city. But I think it's also, you know, can, can be looked at as um, you know, evidence of, of certain kinds of anxieties, right? That there's an, there's an anxiety, you know, when you have an overwhelming police presence somewhere, it's, it, it is an attempt to assert control, but it's also, it shows you that there's, uh, that that presence is, is necessary to assert that control, that the control is contested um, in, in fairly substantial ways. In the same way that if you look at you know protests in the U.S. where there's you know huge police presence, that 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 you know on the one hand it shows you that the the state is not necessarily uh, you know willing to accept certain kinds of uh, protest or certain kinds of um, you know confrontations, but it also shows that that there's a kind of anxiety about certain kinds of issues that can bring people onto the street, that there's um, an anxiety about changes in society, about, you know, political changes that, uh, uh, that, that kind of require the, the kind of re-imposition or the, the kind of symbolic, uh, kind of overwhelming symbolic force, right? That, that really you don't necessarily need all these individuals in, in police uniforms, but that uh, that, that the state feels that it's important to show that it has absolute control. And in doing so, it, it shows that it's kind of nervous about 
not actually having that that full control. You also wrote about 1929, which is one of those uh, uh, tragic events, massacres, I like to call it, uh, that mark the recent history of, of Jerusalem. Obviously, Jerusalem witnessed many similar events, but that has remained very much uh, like a staple in the, in the memory of the various communities or, or, uh, of Jerusalem. And you wrote about sort of the uh, religious boundaries that probably shaped Jerusalem as a result of 1929. I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, what is 1929 and what happened as a result of uh, uh, that event. So in 1929, there was a, a basically what had been a kind of you know brewing contest over access uh, to the Western Wall of the Haram Sharif, the the Wailing Wall, Al Burak, you know, called different things by different communities. Um, that kind of uh, disputes and, and tensions over um, what kind of access was allowed to that site. Um, who had access to, to different parts of it. And, and it was kind of wrapped up in this question of the status quo, where essentially the Ottomans had established uh, rules over which communities had access to which sites. And, and the British had kind of, um, you know, made it their priority to maintain those rules. At least they kind of vocally committed themselves to that. Um, on the other hand, you had a Zionist movement that was kind of uh, gaining strength and, and pushing against the status quo, right? Essentially saying that this status quo that was established uh, under the Ottomans was not favorable to the Jewish community in Palestine and that it was necessary to um, kind of rewrite the status quo to grant uh, Jews greater access that, that you know, and in some ways to for certain kind of groups within uh, the Zionist movement, especially the kind of more radical right, um, to kind of lay claims to ownership over particular kinds of religious sites, including uh, the, the Western Wall, right? You know, there were disputes in the year prior to, to the outbreak of um, 1929, this kind of, um, and I should say kind of 1929, it was, a, it was a number of different things, right? It was both the kind of popular uprising against British um, rule and, and kind of uh, combined with attacks against kind of uh, recently established uh, Zionist colonies in Palestine, but it was also kind of combined with these kind of very, um, you know, serious, uh, uh, you know, violence within kind of older cities that had more kind of older established Jewish communities within them, including Jerusalem, uh, including Safad, uh, and including Hebron. That these places that had, you know, kind of Jewish communities that, that had been there since before the advent of the Zionist movement, really, um, that these were also kind of places where you saw kind of significant acts of violence um, uh, and kind of uh, attacks by, Palestinians uh, against uh, Jews. And kind of within all this, you had kind of very significant um, British security forces uh, reprisals and, and attacks against Palestinians as well. So it kind of uh, combined all these different things within it. Um, so in 1929, this dispute over the Western Wall essentially 
kind of uh, came to a head, right? You had um, Zionist uh, uh, marches and, and demonstrations kind of, again, kind of seeking to assert control and ownership over this uh, religious site. Uh, you had, um, you know, Palestinians uh, uh, kind of reacting and, and, and kind of um, seeking to, uh, you know, challenge that uh, assertion. And you just had a kind of outbreak of, of popular violence in, in, in many ways. Um, and what I was interested in was, was how, these, how these boundaries worked in a certain way to maintain uh, a stable social order before uh, kind of in many ways before the advent of, of, of Zionism and, or before the kind of rise of Zionism in Palestine, how they became kind of flashpoints uh, uh, and, and kind of how the challenging of existing boundaries um, said something also about the changing ways that people understood communities to be organized, not as religious communities, but as national communities. Um, and that it was that this kind of you know, in some ways, a transition or a transformation of an understanding that that saw communities in Palestine as religious communities to one that saw them as national communities, um, you know, brought about the, the certain kinds of challenges to these boundaries that that were meant to kind of, in some ways, divide communities, but also to to kind of lay out the the existing social order, and that the violence of 1929 kind of that we can read it as, um, you know, this this shift from a sort of religious, you know, community-based social order to a national community-based social order. And I also wanted to, in some ways, kind of challenge uh, a notion or challenge romanticized images um, of of kind of life before 1929, both kind of from from Zionist and from uh, Palestinian nationalist perspectives that that sort of saw this as um, or saw kind of life before 1929 or before the mandate as, as kind of one of, of sort of harmonious coexistence. And I, and I wanted to kind of push a little bit deeper and say this, this how is it that, that this coexistence worked? You know, in, in some ways it worked because there were clear boundaries between different communities. There were certain kinds of expectations about, you know, these communal boundaries, and by boundaries, I, you know, I mean kind of physical boundaries, but also social and, and um, you know, you know, the ways people interact and, and marry and, and these kinds of things, and that the attempt to kind of dissolve or, or rewrite these boundaries um, introduced by nationalism is kind of is what produced this violence. Not that, and, and, and in a way, to kind of get away from this sort of like a placid ideal before this moment and then kind of violent chaos after it and to kind of really kind of delve in and see how how these how it is that, that the society worked before 1929 and what is it that was that changed that brought about this kind of moment of of kind of spectacular violence i hope to have in the future um two scholars Rana Barakat and Ilel Cohen to talk uh, about 1929 and hear the different perspectives on on these events, and, and which I found fascinating and still, you know, requiring probably a lot of work. There's so many intricacies, not just about the events, but also the uh, uh, the legacy that they uh, left with the population of Jerusalem, but at large in Palestine. 
Mm. I have one last question for you, Alex. Is there anything that I didn't ask, but you want to add? Oh, there's so many things to talk about. Um, well, one thing I will say, hmm, that's, that's a very good question. Uh, I'll say that, that one of the things that I think is useful in, in thinking about Jerusalem and in writing about Jerusalem is the question of, of sources. And I think, um, you know, this also gets to the, this question of, of 1929, but also of policing, um, also kind of Jerusalem quarterly in general, and thinking about, you know, what, what are the sources that we're using to write the history of Jerusalem? What are the kind of perspectives that are given primacy and, and which are the perspectives that kind of remain marginal? And what are the perspectives that we simply don't have access to, but but uh, would like to have access to it? And how does their absence from the archive um, change our, our view of the city? And I think, you know, working with police uh, documents is kind of really helps make this extremely clear because the police have a very, you know, particular perspective on things, right? They view everyone as a potential criminal in some, in some senses. And when they see, when they're kind of engaged with someone who uh, is, you know, accused or believed to have committed a crime or to have broken the law, their goal is to gather all the evidence that proves that they did it and kind of put it into a narrative that, that makes sense. On the other hand, when you look at, at kind of court records, for example, on the other hand, everyone who is in the position of a defendant in court is trying to prove their innocence, whether or not they've, you know, broken the law or not. And so you're you're stuck in a situation where the interests of every party become are, are kind of clear from the outset, right? No one is goes into a, a court case trying to prove their own guilt. You know, and, and so the interesting thing then becomes less about whether or not, you know, you know, this source is correct or this source is correct, but trying to kind of read between the lines and reading kind of what are the different, what's important to different people in, in the setting, trying to get to break out of this framework of like, was the crime committed or was it not committed? Was this the person that committed it or was it not the person that committed it? And I think, you know, that in a sense, kind of that the necessity of breaking out of the sort of master controlling narrative is one that we can apply more widely for Jerusalem, right? That, that there are these master narratives, that there are these controlling narratives. And it, at times it can, it can feel like everything about the city, everything uh, that takes place in the city has to kind of be worked into one uh, controlling narrative or another. But that the important thing is that, that you know, we don't have to let those controlling narratives control us. And that, that really we have a much better picture of Palestine, of Jerusalem, um, of Israel, if we uh, don't allow those controlling narratives to be the only thing that, that frames our understanding uh, of, and, and the way that we absorb information, um, the way we read texts, the way we read sources, and that kind of coming at them with a more open perspective and a willingness to kind of not let those master narratives um, be the be all and end all um, really gives us a much richer, a much more vibrant, a more colorful, a more 
um, energetic and dynamic uh, experience of the city. And, and so that's, uh, I guess I'll leave, leave with that. This was Alex Winder, visiting assistant professor in Middle East studies at Brown University and co-editor of Jerusalem Quarterly. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>